This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. This series is called Better. Now, the tagline to that is because perfect is not an option. We're going to really today camp out in the idea of perfect. But to get started, I wanted to go to kind of the main thought for this series, which is the message of Jesus doesn't necessarily guarantee you a better life, but it does guarantee that you'll get better at life. I want to leave that statement up there on the screen. The message of Jesus doesn't necessarily guarantee you a better life. Think about circumstances. It doesn't guarantee that your circumstances are going to change, but it does guarantee that you'll get better at life, that your approach to life will change. No more evident than in the first century when the gospel is first being heralded and proclaimed, when people are being persecuted beyond means that we can even understand in modern culture for making a decision to follow Jesus, that at the same time, because of their approach to to life, the message of Jesus continued to spread and transform cities and cultures and towns and people's lives. Why? Because the message of Jesus doesn't necessarily promise that you're going to have a better life in circumstantial ways, but it does promise that you'll get better at life, which is really in total contradiction to the term karma. And I know that many of you like to say phrases around karma that I can't say from the platform, right? Because they have words that you're not supposed to say when you're preaching. But the thing is, is that karma is an idea that has crept into our culture, that if you do good, good will happen to you, right? And it is not biblical. Not biblical even a little bit. As a matter of fact, the problem with karma is if karma is real, if karma is real, then isn't Jesus and the message of Jesus a joke? Didn't he do everything right? Wasn't he literally the embodiment of perfection? And then how did it end up for him? He was crucified as a criminal. If karma is real, did he get what he deserved? No. And if we invert that, do you really think you've gotten what you deserve? How many of y'all know you're supposed to be busted for a speeding ticket a whole lot more than you've ever been busted? Right? And maybe even much worse. Right? Have you got what you deserved? No. We haven't. I love John 16 where Jesus said, I told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. This is for somebody right here. Peace in me. Not peace in your circumstances. Not peace in what your bank account says. Not peace in what other people have said about your circumstances. That you may have peace in me. I told you so that you may have peace on me because here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows. But take heart because I have overcome the world. Take heart for I have overcome the world. So 
as we kind of dive into the topic of perfect, I have titled today's talk, Better Than Perfect. Better Than Perfect. And I've already lost some of you. Because some of y'all are like, what? Better than perfect. Kevin, you stupid. There is nothing that is better than perfect. As a matter of fact, that's the best. The best is perfect. You ever thought that way? All of us have. Our cultures eat up with the, the idea, the identity of perfect, the perfect body, the perfect car, the perfect image, the perfect house. We just eat up with perfect. And it's actually, if you dive into it, it's a systemic problem. If you go into what's called the DSM-4, the physician's desk reference for counselors, it is listed in there as a personality disorder. Perfectionism. Perfectionism can be defined this way. Someone who believes that perfection should be strived for and can be achieved in its pathological or negative form. It's an unhealthy belief that anything less than perfect is not acceptable. As I go through this, many of you are going to find that you are in the category of being a perfectionist. Some of you already know your card-carrying member to the club, right? You got it in your back pocket. Some of y'all flag-waving members, right? Y'all just going to pull them out and start waving them flags back and forth. All right? There's a saying among psychologists that perfectionism is a lot like water. You pour it into different cups and it takes on different forms. One of those forms is what they call socially prescribed perfectionism where you have, where you only have value if you are perfect. It, it has to do with the way that other perceive you. This is why some of you, if I look at the pictures of your kids on Instagram, they're always perfect. There is no ketchup on their face at all. They are always behaving and smiling and their rooms are clean. Right? Because we all know that's a lie. Because I've seen you kid with ketchup and queso all over their face. But the only reason you put that out there is because we put our perfect image out for people to see. But you know that there's a problem with this kind of perfectionism. Is that in, in studies they have found that there's a higher correlation with people who behave this way, who want to be perceived as being perfect. There's a higher correlation with depression. Much higher. Much higher prevalence in these people in depressive tendencies. Why? In one Researcher said it's this. It's that if I do good now, then that means I have to live under the pressure of doing better later. Some of you live with that. Some of you live with other-oriented perfectionism, which demands perfection from others. You demand perfection from your spouse. You demand perfection from your kids. You demand perfection from your coworkers and from your employees, from everybody in your life. You are not happy unless you get perfection. Anything less than that is not good. And the problem with this and all the research studies is that when you're the person that demands 
perfection from other people is that it constantly erodes and disintegrates your capacity to live with intimacy and love with others. And lastly, probably the most dangerous out of all is self-oriented perfectionism. Self-oriented perfectionism. Now, this is not talking about the desire to, um, to, to do well or to excel or to, um, to, to have excellence in your life. This is talking about the desire to be perfect internally, the internal expectation that you will be perfect. And in research, they have found that in low stressful times or people who have low stressful jobs, that this can coexist and work fine that there will be very little negative connotations or consequences to this, but inevitably something is going to happen that is going to provoke high levels of stress. And when it does, invariably there are consequences of mental disorders that are highly probable to come out of that. It's dangerous. And we live in a culture that has elevated perfection, our ability to be perfect, to this pedestal. I love what Dr. Paul Hewitt, a, a researcher, a clinical researcher at the University of British Columbia, but also sustains a practice of counseling people. He, he said, in addressing their standards, and he said, because everybody's told a perfectionist, you just need to lower your standards. In addressing their standards, when I work with perfectionists, I try to address what's causing them to behave the way. They need they need to be accepted. They need to be cared for in other interpersonal needs. Those are what drive the perfectionists. It's not their standards. It's stuff behind it that they need. So today I'm going to talk about the standard that God has for us. Why we will never meet that standard and why the way that God made it is better than perfect. The standard. You know, the thing about our church is we love the Bible. We love that the Bible points us to Jesus. And if you've ever read John chapter 1, at the very beginning of John chapter 1, two times as it describes the coming of Jesus, it says that Jesus came filled with grace and truth. He came filled with grace and truth. And can I tell you right now, there is no way to have a loving relationship without grace and truth. If you only have grace and you don't have truth, all you get is enabling. If you only have truth and you don't have grace, all you get is abuse. But when you have truth and you have grace, you have love. Okay? This is why I've said before, it's most oftentimes the most loving thing that we can do is to have a hard conversation. As a matter of fact, researchers would say that it's impossible to sustain a long-term loving, committed relationship without being committed to having hard and difficult conversations. So I'm going to take you to this moment in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus throws out the standard 
And I want you to think about it in context of what we've been talking about. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Which sounds scary in light of all that we've said. That this desire to be perfect could be so negative. And I'm going to tell you and give you the freedom over the next few minutes to try to explain why God's way is so good for us. The first thing is that God refuses to lower His standards for us. It is not love if you lower your standards. It's not love if you see your spouse flirting with someone else and you go, well, you know, oh, well, they're just friendly. It's not love when you, you see your kids doing less than their best and you say, well, you know, I just don't want to get into another argument. You know, whatever they do, that's just going to be, well, that'll be acceptable. That's not love. Love doesn't lower its standards. And number two, the most loving thing that God can do for us is allow us to be measured against His standards. Because the problem is, too many of us are measuring our lives by our own standards. By what we think is right and wrong. What we think is excellent and acceptable. And God says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to do that for you. Because you'll get yourself into a point where you'll start talking yourself out of what's best and you'll start lowering your standards. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to create a standard and you're going to constantly be measured against it. And it's loving because it never lets us off the hook. But in Mark 10, Jesus is asked to an interesting question, especially in the context of this conversation, because someone comes up to him and says, good teacher, can you explain this problem to me? And he responds, do you call me good? Nobody is good except God. Nobody's good. So if you're in here and You've been having a good week, feeling like you got it all together, and you ain't made any mistakes, I hate to tell you, but Jesus just said you're not good. Wasn't me. I don't mean to hurt your feelings this morning. Sorry about that. If you need therapy because of that, do not send the church the bills. You can send the bills to Jesus. I do not know his address. I just put Jesus on it, put a post stamp, and just put it in there, and maybe that'll come back paid. All right, um, here's the thing. Jesus pronounces over all of us that we are not good. There's a standard. And in reality, we are not meeting the standard. How many of y'all are meeting the standard? Raise your hand. Good. No hands went up. I was, I was really hoping nobody would put their hands up. Isn't that would probably mean a conversation. But, but anyway, <laughs> all right. I mean, we're not, and we know it. I mean, the truth is that we have blown it, we are blowing it, and we're probably going to blow it again. I'm going to read three verses, and I want you to think about how they apply to you today. John, or James 4.17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. How many of y'all have ever known there's something you're supposed to do and you didn't do it? Lots of us, right? 
lots of us, we've failed. There's been times God's asked you to encourage somebody you didn't. There's been times God's asked you to give and you didn't. There's been times that God's asked you to get involved and you didn't. And in all of those times when God directed you, when you felt that pull in your heart, when you knew you were supposed to do something and you didn't do it, it was sin. Which really kind of puts us in that next verse, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's an what we call in theology an allscape, it means that every person is included, every person in this room is included in this, that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no escaping that verse. There is no hiding from it. It is your present reality. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We do not deserve God. Measured against the standard, we don't deserve Him. And then, if you are that person, and there are some of us, and I get there sometimes where you just feel like you haven't done anything wrong. 1 John 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Why? Because Jesus said what? I came to seek and to save that which was lost. I came to die for humanity. My goal is to be the ransom of the world that is long lost in sin. And so if Jesus pronounces that he's going to die for a world that is lost in sin, and you say, but that's not me, all you're doing is calling Jesus a liar. So a few observations on those verses. Number one, we all sin. We all do. It's not just your spouse, all right? Not just your kids. Not just your employees. You too. We all sin. But here's such a good promise. I could spend so much time talking about I have very little time to expand this idea. But the message of Jesus isn't about managing your sin. It's about an invitation to something better. In Matthew 5, there's this moment where Jesus says, be perfect as the Lord your God is perfect, right? He says that. Be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. Now, here's the problem. If you take that out of the context, you don't really get the gist of what's being said at the very beginning of that chapter as he begins the discourse that goes into the Sermon on the Mount. He's asked about the law. And the law is the standard, the rules and the regulations that so many of you use to define what is perfect and what is not perfect. Did you lie, steal, cheat? Did you treat people kindly? Were you good? Were you generous? All of the checklists that you have put together. And at the very beginning of that chapter, Jesus goes, you suppose that I came to abolish the law, to throw it away. No, 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 no. I came to fulfill it. 
So what's going to happen is standing in front of you is going to be the embodiment of the law. And then he begins this discourse where he goes through six different ideas that were associated with the law. And he says, you have heard it said, but I say. Radically transforming the understanding of that little checkbox that so many people had been going every day. Well, I've done that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I didn't do that. And he goes, so you've heard it said, do not commit murder. But I say that if you've ever looked on anyone with anger in your heart and longed to hurt them, you have murdered them in your heart. Well, that changes things, doesn't it? How many of y'all just get cut off in traffic and all of a sudden you murdering people all in your heart, left and right, right? If your heart was a machine gun, it'd just be going off, going everywhere. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, that if any man has looked on another woman lustfully and longed for him, you've already committed adultery in her heart. What? what, what? Well, I've been checking that list off every day. That, that, that means I can't, do, I can't do that anymore. You see, Jesus went through everything that they had been checking off as they thought they were good, they thought they were getting it right. He said, no, 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 no. Let me extend the idea. And then begins and ends that chapter by saying, no, look at me. Be perfect as the Lord. Your God is perfect. Why is that so important? Because the next thing in your notes, the standard for our lives is Jesus. The standard that we're going to be measured against is Jesus himself. And it is the most loving and caring thing that God could do for us to measure our lives against Jesus. He doesn't drop his standards. He's not manipulating the rules. It is that we are constantly being evaluated and should be evaluating our lives against the person of Jesus, but there's a problem when it comes down to it. There's a problem, and I like to call it the performance gap. And see, there, there's always a ceiling to our capacity. You know this, you experience it every day. There's an end to your strength. How many of y'all get to that moment at about 8 or 9 o'clock and you just get sleepy as bedtime, right? You go get in your chair, Right, You turn on your program and you fall asleep. All right? Why? Because your strength is over. Can I tell you something? That there will come a day that your time will be over. Your time will be over. The minutes and days that God has given you to live on earth will come to an end one day. There's an end to our capacity. How many of y'all have ever noticed this about yourself? You ever notice that, that sometimes, especially in the middle of conflict, you get all in that point where you feel like you just did wrong, you got an idea, just like this is how it's going to be, this is what it is, and then you get a little bit removed, and you're like, that was dumb. 
Why was I thinking that? You ever been there? You ever been dead wrong about something that you thought you were dead right about? I mean, our own thoughts will fail us. Proverbs 14, 12 says, one of the scariest things in all the Bible, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. Which means that you can be fully convinced that what you're doing is okay and right, and at the end of that way, it is not life, it's death. You see, there will always be a gap between your performance and God's standard. There will always be a gap between your performance and God's standard. And what happened to that gap? That God has a high standard, but our capacity is only able to get so far. That God made a decision to send His Son Jesus so that He would die and then be able to give us grace to close the gap. This week I was reminded of a story out of 1 Kings. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It has to do with the prophet Elijah. Elijah has basically caused a problem for himself. The queen of the nation had a, a group of false priests and, and basically he along with the Lord killed him. Alright, so bad situation for him. He is now in hiding. And it sounds like a pretty good situation because he's in a nice little ravine. God is sending everyday birds with food in their mouth to drop it off. Hey, it it sounds a little bit like he's at an all-inclusive resort, okay? I mean, food is being brought to him. He's got all he needs. And then all of a sudden, because he predicted before he left and went into hiding, God's not going to send rain because of you. And it quit raining. And the little brook where he was getting his water from dried up. How many times you prayed for God to do something, he did it, and then all of a sudden you got mad that he did it? It happened to him. He started to complain, now God, how am I going to live now? And God said, don't worry. I've prepared for you. I'm going to send you to a city and there's a widow that's there. She has a son. She's very poor. But I'm going to do a miracle in her life. And through her, I'm going to provide for her. She's going to take care of you until it starts to rain again. So he approached the city and he found actually the widow on the outside of the city gathering sticks and he told her God's plan. God sent me here. You're going to provide for me. It's going to be awesome. I've been living basically in a five-star resort and so I'm going to imagine that that's exactly what's about to happen, right? And so he shares the news and this is what she says. As surely as the Lord, your, your God. I love that line. Lord, your God lives. I don't have any bread. Only a handful of flour in a jar and a little olive oil in a jug. And I'm gathering a few sticks to go home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Now I'm going to preach for just a little bit, okay? Don't say amen. kind of throws me off. All right, just, just listen. Just sit and soak up what I'm about to share because some of y'all are right where I'm about to talk about. All right? When he finds her, 
God has promised to use her. And he's promised to use her in a capacity that required two tools. A jug of flour and a vask of olive oil. But do you realize that when Elijah shows up on the scene, the things that God intended to use were empty. They were empty. And so many times when we look in our hearts and in our lives and we're empty, we call it judgment, we blame the devil, and we feel like it's the, the end of all good things. But perhaps the emptiness in your life is there so that God can fill it. So that God can fill it. Because for the next few months, as the drought continued, every time they went back to that jar of flour, God had filled it. Every time they went back to that vask of olive oil, God had filled it. There was no way for God to fill it if it had been already full, y'all. And sometimes we have to be emptied so we can be filled. And some of you, some of you are struggling in life because your lives are filled with things that God never intended for you to be filled with. And you'll never be fulfilled when your life is full of stuff God doesn't want for you. So here's our problem. At the end of the day, we're like, God, here's my family. I'm a husband and a dad. And I did my best, but it, it wasn't perfect. But I did my best. And this is all I've got to give. God, the day I went to work, I was boss with an employee. Maybe I was just a guy that goes to a factory. And I wasn't perfect, but I did my best. I made some mistakes. But I wasn't perfect, but God, this is, this is the end of my capacity. This is all I have. So God, this is part of my day. God, here's, here's my relationship with you. You, you know, it's been, it's been a difficult day. And I've prayed. And I've sought you. God, I've, I've read your word. I've tried to listen to you, but, but I ain't got it all right. I know there are times that and got a little selfish. But God, this is what my day looks like. And we pull it in. And there's God's standard. And there's our capacity. So many of us, every night 
we end right there. Focused on the fact that we couldn't get there. That others noticed that we couldn't get there. That we were imperfect. That we weren't able to fill it up. That our capacity was only so much. And God said no. <laughs> the, the beauty is in the fact that it's not full. Because if it were full, there would be nothing for me to fill. If it were full, there would be nothing for me to fill. And so God comes along as we pray and we say, God, I can't do it on my own. I need you. The only way I make it is with you, God. The only way I can experience life is through you. God comes in and he adds his grace and his mercy and his love. And we're filled. See, let me ask you a question. Which scenario expresses your value more? One where you worked hard and you were perfect and you earned it. And at the end of the day, you earned the prize. You earned whatever it was. Or the other one where you worked hard, you did your best, but you made some mistakes and you were found wanting and not good enough to earn it. But the person in possession of the prize decided, I see such value in you that I'm going to give it to you anyway. I'm going to give it to you. You didn't earn it. And as a matter of fact, you couldn't, but I'm going to give it to you. Which one expresses greater value in you? I'll answer the question for you. The one where it's given. That's where it's expressed. Because the other scenario, your value is limited by what you can perform to. And the love of God, the love of God can only be given. It cannot be earned. It can only be given. So think about this not just in light of the way that God loves us, but in the way that we love other people. Because this verse should just totally wreck you for the rest of the day. John 15, verse 2. So my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. How many of y'all have recognized that there ain't a person that's ever going to get up to here? There ain't one. There's not an employee. There's not, there's not a spouse. There's not a kid that's going to get all the... The only way we can love somebody the right way is to choose to love them. Is to choose to give them love. Because that's what love is. The only way to love someone is to choose them and give them Love, because that's exactly the way that God has loved you. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.